Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It wasn't that long ago that we thought the internet would be good for democracy. We used the word community without scare quotes. We watched uprisings in Iran and Egypt from the outside using the internet. There were people in the United States Department of State who said that public diplomacy through the internet was better than men in ties meeting quietly. These are things that people thought within the last decade. There are things that Facebook executives still say with a straight face. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. This week, Isabella Kaminska, the editor for FT Alphaville, talked to Andrew Keane. He was early to the idea that scare quote community was not going to work out the way we hoped. He wrote the books The Internet is Not the Answer and The Cult of the Amateur, but he also says that we can't indulge in cynicism and despair. This is a hard thing for a journalist to hear. Cynicism and despair are like on our coat of arms. But it's a really good conversation, and I am excited to have you hear it. They're going to talk about his book, How to Fix the Future. They're going to talk about why Elon Musk is a Shakespearean tragedy and Jeff Bezos is a Bond villain. But Izzy started by asking how he got here. Here's Andrew Keene. Well, Isabella, you're being very kind to call it a career. Actually, uh, it's a, a narrative of failure. Uh, but as everybody in Silicon Valley knows, the more you fail, the the more success you have. So I failed on many different levels. I was thrown out of grad school at Berkeley. Uh, I had a startup in, uh, I had a journalist career, which was a series of failures. And then I uh, did a startup in the 90s, Audio Cafe, which was an extremely expensive failure. Fortunately, it was mostly other people's money. Uh, so uh, establishing a kind of coherent narrative of, out of that, I think, is, is tricky. What perhaps uh, defines the narrative is my uh, character as a, a rather miserable, curmudgeonly character. And that also reflects my job title, which is Chief Unhappiness Officer at Sagetti, the big European uh, business consultancy. It's a fantastic job title. In fact, that's how we um, ended up corresponding, bringing you into this podcast today, because I'd written a piece about... Um, how job titles are becoming more and more absurd. I was making the argument that it's it's possibly a function of corporates not really knowing what their purpose is anymore. Um, and I actually thought you were joking when you said that your your um, title was Chief Unhappiness Officer. Does it feed into this whole kind of mystic job thing? You know, one of the exports out of Silicon Valley is happiness, which, as you and I know, is an absurd idea. As you know, I'm Anglo-American. Americans tend to be uh, miserable optimists, uh, and British people tend to be cheerful pessimists. <laughs> I don't need to talk about Brexit or anything, because I'm sure you talk about that all the time. But the one thing the British are very good at is exporting unhappiness. Given that I, my background's from the UK, uh, I have monetized unhappiness, which I'm very cheerful about, actually, ironically. And I think that kind of unhappiness was the thing that laced a lot of my books. 
I'm naturally skeptical of extreme happiness. And of course, that was the message coming out of Silicon Valley, which clearly was bogus and which um, reflected uh, my early work that such extreme happiness, the idea that the internet would create extreme happiness was obviously wrong. So in that capacity as chief unhappiness officer, are you basically the resident skeptic and, and the person who's sort of cross-examining all these, you know, extremely bullish and, and utopian sort of proclamations coming out of, I don't know, the corporate sphere? Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, you know, my business is in bursting bubbles. But at the same time, I'm also in the business of bursting the kind of the dystopian bubble, I think, now that has been the reaction uh, as the critique of Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm just as critical of dystopianism as I am of utopianism. That's why I came up with my Moore's Law in How to Fix the Future, which is the, the key idea in the book. It's not Gordon Moore's Law, it's Thomas Moore's Law, the author of Utopia. So I think extreme misery, which tends to now be the way in which people think about Silicon Valley, is just as dangerous, just as absurd as extreme happiness. Uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is not the devil. It's funny because I ended up being a critic of Silicon Valley, having previously been a big champion of it. And I remember in the days when I was kind of championing all these ideas and the utopian vision, I was Mark Andreessen and those sorts of people were very keen to be my Twitter friends. Um, and it, it felt like in hindsight, like being part of a Scientology cult or something. And then when I kind of zapped out of it... Um, not only did they very quickly become my, well, they blocked me, <laughs> but they also, I, 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 they blocked you. Oh yes, they blocked me. But um, I felt very much like it was, you know, it was a bit like being a, a former Scientologist, and you were shunned by that community. Suddenly, they didn't like the sort of introspection. But what what you say about not going too far is really important because it's always about challenging your own assumptions, and you become too dystopian. You're absolutely right. You you also become skewed in your thinking. So what I did want to draw you on is actually to go back to your earliest work, the Cult of the Amateur, because I really do see it as sort of having predicted a lot of the environment we're in right now, where everyone. We've dubbed it the sort of fire festival economy. Everything's kind of fraudulent and fake and nobody is certain what, what is really real. The fake it till you make it um, approach, but also, you know, the influencer thing. Do you feel that your work in um, Cult of the Amateur has come to pass in that sense? The thinking behind Cult of the Amateur was I, back in the early days of Web 2.0, 2001, 2002, 2003, I'd been around Silicon Valley for a while. I used to go to a lot of conferences, a lot of events, do speeches. I was one of the few people lucky enough to actually keep my keep a job uh, in 2001, 2002. So I became a kind of biz dev officer selling various kinds of software. Um, what Web 2.0 assumed in this sort of extreme cheerfulness, and it, and it actually came out of Foo Camp, Friends of O'Reilly Camp, which sort of epitomizes that uh a utopian cheerfulness where a group of people met at uh, O'Reilly's office in Sebastopol, the publishing office, and they camped for a weekend and they were unnaturally cheerful for 48 hours. You know, the, the, the cult of the amateur was based on this extreme democratic ideal that didn't have to have training for anything. Anyone could become anything now because technology did away with the injustice of the ruling elites of one kind or another, the publishing elite. Anyone could be a writer. Anyone could be a musician. Anyone could be a filmmaker. 
They could distribute their stuff on these new platforms, which were free, uh, and, 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 and everyone would win. And of course, what we found over the last 10 or 15 years is rather than everyone winning, everyone's actually losing. Very, very few people have made any money out of this. Um, and the, our, our culture uh, has been wrecked. Our, our, our politics is being wrecked. And our, our, our consciousness, I think, in many ways is being undermined by this absurdity. What I think is so um, insightful in the book is I think you kind of put your thing, finger on the whole fake news thing way before it was a thing, because obviously it's very trendy in the mainstream media to deny that fake news is a thing. But I think uh, we in the media don't do ourselves any favours by denying the fact that we've also become susceptible to the um, stealth monetization strategies and the kind of more dubious monetization. Um, we've had to take upon ourselves because media just doesn't pay anymore. And then you have all the kind of, you know, how many journalists depend on Wikipedia? And as you know, it's full of errors. It's just not dependable. It, it is amateur content. And there's this horrific feedback loop where you can just see the fake news going round and round in circles. And everyone in the mainstream media sort of taking this uh, holier than thou perspective on it but actually are we just as responsible and long way of saying did you predict in some ways the kind of total collapse and faith in the media that we have today in some quarters well don't flagellate Isabella because you, you're one of the few people who have actually stood up to this stuff and I think the FT have done a good job with their paywall and their curatorial qualities so I think it would be wrong to, for you to take responsibility on your frail shoulders for the entire destruction of Western civilization. <laughs> um, you're very kind, of course, to say I, I saw it first, but it really was a situation of the, the child noticing that the empress was naked, where everybody else was somehow closing their eyes to this. It was as obvious today as it was then. It was obvious in the sense that when you do away with gatekeepers, you have anarchy. When you do away with editors, when anyone can publish anything, it lends itself to mob rule. It lends itself to Putin's trolls. It lends itself to the kind of uh, narcissistic political catastrophe that we've fallen into. It lends itself to disinformation, uh, lends itself to echo chamber culture and epistemology. Um, so I don't know whether it was just me being naive or being naturally an unhappy person. Uh, and I wasn't alone. I mean, Nick Carr recognized it. Sherry Turkle understood it. Um, there were a group of academics who and, and journalists. The problem was, is it not the problem? I think what Silicon Valley did was do a brilliant marketing job in selling cheerfulness and in suggesting that if you didn't agree, that there's somehow something wrong with you, that you were a miserable person, that you didn't get it, um, that you were against progress. And joking aside, you know, I'm a skeptical person, but I'm not naturally miserable in spite of my job title. So you had to be willing to be attacked. When Cult of the Amateur came out in 2007, I was vilified as this. I was on the Colbert show. Even he said, you, sir, you're an elitist. And I sat back in the chair and said, yeah, what's wrong with that? I am. What's, what's wrong with being an elitist? I respect people who dedicate their lives to knowledge. And I think that journalists and academics know a lot more than everybody else. There's nothing to be ashamed about. And, uh, you know, he was, of course, joking because he's 
he, he, I mean, I'm sure he agreed with me. Uh, but uh, after that, I became, you know, for a while, public enemy number one on the internet. Now being replaced by lots of other people. Um, but it was obvious. It was as obvious then as it is now that if you don't have gatekeepers, if you don't have curation, um, you have anarchy, you have chaos, you have cultural decay. It's so obvious now. And as you see, say, Facebook, which is this slow train wreck, as, as Mark Zuckerberg acknowledges finally that privacy is important, as he finally acknowledges that you need curation, he's simply observing or recognizing a self-evident fact, um, which was as obvious to me then as it is now and to lots of other people. There's this kind of collective utopianism, uh, this hysteria. It's the, the hysteria of optimism, the hysteria of technology somehow naturally, inevitably making the world not so much a better place, but a fairer place, a more democratic place. And what I've been arguing over the last 10 or 15 years is actually the reverse is true. What we're seeing is increasingly a winner-take-all economy of extreme inequality in, in economic terms, in cultural terms, in political terms, the decimation of the middle. So I, I'm not just a destructive skeptic. I actually care about the new kind of injustices of the system. And in my new book, How to Fix the Future, I compare it to the early years of the Industrial Revolution and say, actually, this isn't that unusual. It happened in the Industrial Revolution in the early years, and it will probably happen in future technological revolutions too. But unless we acknowledge this and confront it and recognize it and fight it, and that's where my idea of Moore's Law as a kind of manifestation of human agency comes in, then we're lost. It's interesting that you you see it as um, defense of the elite. Perhaps that's a misnomer. Perhaps what, what you've really identified is that there has been for the last decade or more a, a war uh, waged by Silicon Valley on the specialist. It's been a transfer of power from the specialist to the amateur. Um, and specialism, as we know, is the function of, of division of labor. It's like the foundations of economics, really. Um, we, without specialization, you can't have a division of labor. So, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, drawing on Robert Solo and, and his observation many years ago, the last time we had this sort of new economy utopianism, was that you can see the kind of computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. Do you think maybe that it's this sort of rising amateurism that is somehow stopping us from from more productive sort of endeavors is 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 it having an impact you know on the economy in a very real statistical way as well it's an interesting question let me discuss it in a different kind of way i think you're right to focus on the division of labor but i think that every new social and economic system creates new kinds of division of labor so let's take the shift from the industrial to the digital economy. The core kind of social infrastructure of the industrial economy uh, was, was rooted in professional expertise. So the ruling class, the meritocracy of the industrial age was were engineers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, or certainly university professors, uh, politicians as a vocation, uh, quoting from, from Max Weber. And you could learn this stuff. That's why going to the best universities in the world was really important. You went to Harvard, you went to Cambridge, you went to Oxford, and you became um, an expert. You learned law, you learned medicine, you learned, I guess, banking. 
although I don't quite know what you learn when you become a banker. It's still a bit of a mystery to me. So what's interesting, I think, about the digital revolution is that ultimately the greatest casualty, I think, of it will be the professional classes. Because what you're going to see and what you're already seeing is a crisis in law schools, a crisis in the kind of expert professions which were the backbone culturally, economically, politically of the industrial age. Now, what's interesting is, is who are the elites who are going to replace it? At the moment, it seems like they're data scientists. They're not going to be influencers on YouTube. They're not going to be four-year-old kids with stupid video shows. They're not going to be people. It's not going to be dumb media celebrities like Donald Trump with millions of Twitter followers. There has to be a new class in the digital age. And I don't know who they're going to be. You're obviously going to have technology executives. Um, you're going to have programmers. But one of the interesting things about the AI revolution, which is, you know, is really the most interesting thing now going on, is that AI will kill most programmers too. So when it comes to the, the division of labor, I think you're absolutely right. But the great question and the great challenge is how this new division of labor will be architected, what it will look like, um, and how we protect jobs. Not only do we protect, everyone talks about protecting jobs, which I think is an, obviously an important issue. But it's also figuring out where our elites are going to come from. Because as Pareto, who's one of my favorite sociologists, in spite of his flirtation with Mussolini, the Vilfredo Pareto, the early 20th century Italian sociologist, you know, he came up with this theory of elites. And he's absolutely right. Every society has elites. Um, and, and who will be the elites of our digital world? Um, and... What will everyone else do? I mean, but it does make me uh, want to ask the question, what are the politics of Silicon Valley these days? Because these are deeply um, sort of political points, uh, how society restructures itself post-digital revolution um, will determine, you know, whether or not theoretically there is progress or not. And and, and I think a lot, there's a lot, I mean, in the in the tech culture wars these days, there is a presumption that Google, all these big sort of corporate tech names that have emerged from this space, they are, they've come up um, citing sort of capitalistic libertarian forces, but actually there's a creeping suspicion that they're much more socialist and communistic in, in structure than, than anyone ever imagined. Do you think as someone who has obviously studied the rise of communism itself, um, do you think that's a fair critique? Or do you think, I mean, I'm quite confused about the politics of Silicon Valley these days. You've got the likes of Peter Thiel supporting Trump. You've got Google being relatively left-leaning. Um, what, what, where do you put it? How, do you, how would you sum it up? Well, I think that it's like asking, what's the politics of England? <laughs> or what's the politics of Europe? Exactly. It used to be quite clear that there was a libertarian sort of right-leaning sort of bias, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Well, for chief unhappiness officers like myself, the critique of Silicon Valley libertarianism was, in the early years, was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was absurd. So it was, I think, encapsulated by your ex-friend Mark Andreessen, <laughs> who who believed that if the market forces worked, then everything would be improved. So it was a classic kind of economic uh, libertarianism. Just leave the state out of it. The state's inefficient. The state's corrupt. The state doesn't get technology. 
And if you just leave us alone and forget about us, then we'll, we'll, we'll solve all the problems in, in, in humanity. Those days have gone now. I think Andreessen is still pretty much a hardcore libertarian, although he keeps his mouth shut because every time he opens it on politics, he gets himself into trouble. You mentioned Teal, but it's, again, too easy to say, well, Teal somehow encapsulates Silicon Valley. Everybody in, and when we called Silicon Valley, everyone between San Jose and San Francisco loathes Peter Teal. His politics, his sort of self-regard um, is, is ugly, and he's left. When you talk about the politics of Silicon Valley, it's like talking about the, the bourgeois politics of, uh, in the middle of the 19th century of the, the new class of industrialists in Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and Bradford and London. Um, they're growing up. So you have, I think, some examples in Silicon Valley, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, of the new elite, the kind of the multi-billionaire class, uh, Mark Benioff, for example, who I think, okay, he's a rich man and he's in love with himself to, on, on some level, but he is pretty responsible. He gets a lot of the problems. And I think what's interesting in Silicon Valley is that San Francisco itself has become the battleground for this kind of political fight, I guess, or a political war. So earlier this year or late last year, Benioff attacked uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter uh, because San Francisco has has become the the kind of um, the proof of how libertarian libertarianism fails because everywhere you go in San Francisco, in, in spite of uh, all the wealth of the city, you have homelessness and drug use. It's the city of shit, but that's not swearing. That's just a, an observation of reality. It's a feudal city, one of extreme inequality of, 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 you know, billionaires and homeless people and very little in between. The firemen and the teachers and the old infrastructure of the, you know, the meritocratic economy have moved out and all that's left are technologists and the homeless and the crazy. And it, and it reflects the crisis of the state, not just in tech, but in America, because half the people wandering around the street are crazy. Half the people are ex-military people who haven't been looked after by the state, having served the country. Um, so what Benioff is calling for is much more aggressive, concrete responsibility in building a more responsible state. Whereas Dorsey's a representative of the old libertarian regime and just saying, look, we're not going to give any money. This thing will sort itself out on its own in terms of self-organization and all this other nonsense. But I think that Benioff is the future and Dorsey is the past. And I'm cautiously hopeful about uh, California, actually. And I think it's no coincidence that we have a new wave of politicians in Silicon Valley uh, and in Northern California who who have captured the new spirit, the new critical spirit, but also uh, the, the optimism. You know, California has always been the bellwether for everything. We know that everything begins in Silicon Valley. Tech began there. And I think the fight back against tech and the challenge and opportunity of rebuilding America will also begin there. I mean, it's funny because talking about it just makes me think of A View to a Kill and obviously yeah. the James Bond film, which um, pitched Silicon Valley as the sort of, I guess, I think it was Christopher Walken as the Zorin, the ultimate Bond villain from Silicon Valley he wanted to take over, or the chip manufacturing. And the reason I mention it is because the way these sort of corporate CEOs have evolved over there is very much in the style of Bond villains. Um, and now I think, as you, I, I think you're absolutely right, 
there's there's been a shift in the zeitgeist where we recognize their sort of bond villain type inclinations certainly zuckerberg um is perceived that way and nobody more well i would say elon musk is the most bond villainy of all of them wow you missed uh, what about jeff bezos oh and of course yes of course jeff bezos <laughs> he is the ultimate although doctor he's not nerd. really from silicon valley yes but he is he does encapsulate the doctor the Dr. No look. Yeah. But no, but seriously, it, the likes of Elon Musk, do you think they are self-aware of how they are coming across? Because it sounds to me like Mark Andreessen is a good example of someone who has learned from his mistakes on Twitter. And now he watches, he observes, he doesn't really engage uh, as much as he used to. But then you've now got the sort of rogue tweeting from the likes of Elon. I mean, hero, villain, what's your view on him? I mean, I think that if there is a Bond villain, it's in tech, it would be someone like Larry Allison, whose, you know, whose goal in life is to have as many women and luxury boats and aircrafts as he possibly can get, um, which is, I don't know if that makes him evil, it just makes him self-interested. Um, yeah, and Andreessen is, a, is an ideologue, a libertarian ideologue, as you say, has learned to keep his mouth shut, although I'm sure he still believes the same stuff. I mean, the Bond villain was Travis Kalanick. He really, and I'd known him for years, and actually he isn't evil. I think he's rather nice in his own way. Uh, but um, he, he, he got decimated by the media. Musk and uh, Bezos are interesting characters. Uh, it's interesting. Are they evil? Are they evil? Are they villains? I think Musk is is melting down publicly. So it's a parable. I mean, there's almost something Shakespearean about Musk. And when you look at his face, it's a complex face. I'm I'm waiting for the movie. I think it'll be a really good movie, much better than The Social Network, which reflected the absurd optimism of our age. I don't know what it's going to be called. I mean, I think he's the most villain-esque, Bond villain-esque, because obviously he's got the space aspirations. And now he's he's challenging the SEC um, most recently. You know, the SEC has fined him and they've imposed restrictions on him. And he's just defying them. It's it's quite incredible to watch. He's literally just saying, "I do." But he isn't. I I don't buy that. I think that he's he's falling to pieces publicly. I think that the SEC will beat him. I think that Tesla is a failing or a failed company. Uh, I think that he is increasingly making a complete fool of himself publicly and that ultimately he won't be employable. So I, I don't think he's a Bond villain. I don't think he's dangerous in that sense. Um, I mean, do you think that Tesla has a future? Everything they do seems to be just one more reason to short the stock. I mean, you're the expert in this, but isn't it obvious that Tesla will it may not fail, but they'll be eventually their, their, the price of their stock will be driven so low that BMW or Volkswagen or Ford or Chrysler would just buy them. The problem with Tesla stock is, this is my own perspective, is that there isn't a fair market um, in Tesla stock because there are so many, I, I would call them, it's almost like a religious belief system, Tesla. You don't buy the stock for the usual reasons people buy stock. You buy it for the belief factor in, in the vision. But that's a tulip craze. Ultimately, you at the FT know this better than anyone, that ultimately that fails. Uh, you might have said that about Enron. Uh, it, it's not Enron. It's not a criminal stock. But I think Tesla is on one level a kind of moral narrative, almost a Shakespearean one. And, and uh, Musk himself, I think, reflects that. But let's talk about Bezos, because I think he's more interesting as a Bond villain. He's much more dangerous uh, and much more complicated. I think especially this, you see, even his physical 
narrative. When you look at the old photos of Bezos as this kind of geeky, likable guy, and now you see these photos of him who is, he's obviously spent hours, I don't know how he has time, but he spent hours in the gym. He looks like a hardcore bodybuilder. Um, obviously, his personal narrative, leaving his wife, who he idealized and seemed to be a symbol of, of his goodness for this uh, person in, in, in Hollywood. What's interesting about Bezos is he is the Bond villain. And because the thing about Bond villains is they're always very good at marketing themselves and they always appear very good. So Bezos's buying of the Washington Post, even his manipulation of public opinion when the National Enquirer and Trump found out about his extramarital affair, but Bezos is the most dangerous person around in terms of his championing of surveillance culture, Amazon's almost single-handed decimation of retail, um, his impact on the economy, and his absurd wealth. I mean, $150 billion is, is, is beyond reason. So I, I think that Bezos is a better example of a a Bond villain that somebody like John Thornhill needs to take down. <laughs> and he's much more in control than, than Musk. I don't think Musk is in control. I think he's mad. I, I think he's a minor Bond villain. He's crazy. He's he's self-destructing. In, he's, he's destroying himself in public. He's going crazy. Uh, he's more like... Um, uh, a sort of a, a tragic figure. There's nothing tragic about a Bond figure, and there's nothing tragic about Bezos. Uh, and I flirted with the idea, and never wrote it, of writing a book called Bezology, which was about the, the ideology of Bezos. I think his focus on surveillance, his championing of, of surveillance technology inside Amazon is, is particularly terrifying. His impact on retail, his... He, he, you know, you use the word libertarian, which I think is interesting, but I think in intellectual terms, the real sort of, if, if you're doing an intellectual history of Silicon Valley, um, you trace it back to Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism. Um, and I think that Bezos has the most sophisticated, he's the most sort of sophisticated, and Amazon is the most sophisticated utilitarian company, and he's the most sophisticated uh, utilitarian theorist, uh, whereas Musk is just kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, and even Bezos, I think Bezos is much more likely to colonize space than, than Musk whose rockets will, like him, will inevitably just eventually blow up in spite of... There'll be a noble failure. There's something about Musk which uh, sort of encapsulates the nobility of failure, whereas Bezos doesn't fail at anything. He doesn't even fail in divorce. For me, the Amazon story is also one of the kind of reenactment of the communist vision of Gosplan, if you if you can ride with me on this. Um, but because it, it's so all-encompassing and because it's focused so much on data and on um, insight about people's wants and desires and the, obviously the idea of Goss plan was that if we had enough information we could manage the economy there wouldn't have to be a, like a actual um, financial market or any monetary exchange because everything would be so direct and I think Amazon is kind of going in that direction and that's what's that's what's quite scary about it from my perspective because manufacturing is in some way influenced by Amazon but also the consumption space everything is sort of cleared through that system 
and it's managed by this no longer a committee of officials, but like an algorithmic equivalent. I think that's a really interesting idea. And what people forget is I, I talked to Martin Sorrell, you know, one of your old friends, regularly on this stuff. And he has always believed that Amazon ultimately could be the biggest player in advertising. The biggest threat, certainly to Facebook and Google, is Amazon uh, because they've become a sort of a trinity on the advertising side. Uh, and they acquire more and more data about all of us. And as they get into the business of insurance, as they focus on medical. The other thing about Bezos, by the way, which is very chilling, is his championing of healthcare reform and his undermining of, you know, his, his alliance with Warren Buffett in trying to rethink the healthcare system, which is coming from the private sector, which is, you know, again, I guess it's a kind of Gosplan thing. But your point is that the digital revolution has turned the economy upside down so that the private has essentially become the public because as you have a private company that monopolizes everything, they essentially de facto become a public organization without the public responsibilities. That's the problem. So not that I'm idealizing Gosplan, but at least the Gosplan people verbally acknowledge they had a public responsibility. The thing with Amazon is it's, a, as you say, a public company. I mean, public in a, in a different sense from a, a, economics, but it has no public obligation, which is the most chilling thing about it. So people like, you know, as a Bond villain, Be Bezos is not only without any input from any of us, he's not only trying to colonize outer space, but change the healthcare system re-architect the entire infrastructure of retail. And that's even without talking about Amazon Web Services, which is an increasingly important part of the company. So I, I buy your idea of um, Bezos as the Bond villain. We just need Hollywood now to make the movie. The problem is he controls Hollywood, so it may not happen. You and I will be ostracized to some sort of remote island, hopefully one not created by Peter Thiel. There was one thing, I know we're running out of time, but I did want to quickly get your view on Uber because the internet is not the answer, focused heavily on the sort of wrongs of the corporate structure there and, and the culture. Um, I personally have also made a very you know strong argument that the core model is not sustainable um, and it's a hugely loss-leading company and it's unclear if it can ever be profitable in my opinion. But what I find very interesting is that since you wrote that book, we've seen the sort of decline and fall of Travis Kalanick the founder and CEO of, of Uber. And it was actually the sort of human agency side of things that, that ended up in some ways being his downfall. Would you agree? Yeah, but I'm not sure if that necessarily changes anything at Uber. I mean, Travis, it wasn't a figurehead, but he became the conductor in the same way as Zuckerberg and, and Sandberg have become the conductor for all criticisms of Silicon Valley and technology. So it doesn't change anything. I don't think anything dramatically changed. I mean, my I think you may be right on Uber and on Lyft in the sense that it reflects a new kind of precariat economy where everyone's driving for them, where the price of the rides is driven lower and lower, where most of the drivers, it seems, are working for less than minimum wage. Now, the Uber Lyft people will come back and say, well, no one's forcing them to drive, which is true, which is even more chilling because if people are working for less than minimum wage. It's partly because they're ignorant and being exploited by the ideology of these companies, and partly because they're desperate for work. 
So what's particularly terrifying, which I pointed out in the Internet's Not the Answer, which I think is becoming an increasing reality, is that the architecture of the digital economy is feeding this extreme inequality between a huge underclass, a precariat underclass of people renting out their spare rooms and driving their Uber and Lyft cars and working on Task Rabbit, and this rich class and everyone else in terms of full-time work has been made unemployed. I know uh, the American job numbers are really good at the moment, but I wonder whether those are full-time jobs or whether most of them are just driving Uber cars. Having said all that, you know, I use Uber all the time. It is a great service, but it's like Spotify as well. I think that there's a connection with that. Some people say, well, Spotify's profitable. My understanding is it still isn't because people are not paying enough for it. And ultimately, we can blame Travis, we can blame Jeff Bezos, we can blame Elon Musk, but we're all responsible because the reason why we go on Spotify is because music is either free or, or obscenely cheap. The reason why we ride in Uber cars is because the prices are really low. But unless you raise prices, these services aren't going to become economically viable. Do you not think there's something very strange about the idea that a company is successful just because it makes a product that people like um, without any kind of focus on whether it's profitable? I mean, we all I mean, I love free stuff. I love free money. If a company came along, just just gave me free stuff, I'm sure it'd be very popular. But there seems to be like a complete detachment from reality. Well, but that's what Google and Facebook are. They, well, Google and Facebook are companies that have come along and given us amazing free stuff. And suddenly we're realizing that actually it's not really free because we've destroyed our privacy and we're creating what you know Zub- Zuboff, I think, correctly calls surveillance capitalism. What Uber is doing um, is creating an architecture of economy of extreme inequality where workers' rights aren't being respected, whether the infrastructure of the old industrial economy is being decimated and being replaced increasingly by this libertarian world where anyone can do anything and no one needs to have formal employment, but everyone's being exploited. So I don't know whether it's profitable or not, Uber. You're saying it isn't? It's just losing money? Oh, it's the biggest loss maker. It's never made a profit. I mean, it's it's about to do an IPO, and I think we'll get a better look at what um, what the financials are really like. But Amazon, Amazon has perfected the idea of losing money and successfully convincing Wall Street that they should pour more money into his company. So uh, Uber isn't new at this, um, and Spotify isn't new either. I mean, most of these companies are, are loss leaders and it ultimately means someone has to pay for the stuff. Either you pay for it or you have your privacy destroyed. And that's why Uber, I think, is particularly scary because they can come up with new business models of d- data-based business models, which are particularly chilling, uh, where some people will ride for free, perhaps, but they will pay with their data. Um, so I, I'm more and more interested in, in companies that charge for products. I think this is going to be the new, new thing. I think that slowly but surely people will recognize that it's in all of our interest to pay more for products. We've been through it with the newspapers. It's become increasingly clear that it's in everyone's interest to pay for paywalls, to pay to access the FT or, or the New York Times. And I think the same is going to be true in the broader economy. I think the new, new thing is 
payment. I, I absolutely agree with that assessment. It's been I would I could talk to you forever, but I, we are sadly running out of time. Have I made you unhappy or happy? You've made me happy in so much as you've validated some of my points, but unfortunately the points are quite pessimistic. So um, perhaps next time we'll focus more on your your more optimistic points. But um, I'm very hopeful that what you say about human agency and about people taking more responsibility. Uh, personally for their actions. I think that if that becomes a, a trend, then perhaps there is still hope. And I, I like, I'd like to close it on your original point that too much dystopianism is, is also bad and we need to be balanced and continuously sort of cross-checking our overly uh, extreme assumptions. So we'll hopefully revisit in a year or two and, and perhaps things will be a bit better. Lovely. Well, great talking to you, Isabella. Thank you for a lovely interview. Likewise. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. Seth in Wyoming emailed us. He said, if we keep saying Econ 101 and 102 the way they were taught in the 80s and 90s and aughts, if they're no longer adequate, what should Econ 101 look like now? That is a really good question. We're on it. For my part, I will not despair. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.